So this week, I am sharing a really exciting announcement. And if you're listening live this week, I'm also bringing back one part of my three-part series on how to unlock the power of ChatGPT. And I'm doing both of these things because I just launched a new ChatGPT resource for nonprofits that I am so, so excited about. It's the nonprofit ChatGPT headquarters. So for those of you who are longtime listeners, you have heard me talk about ChatGPT before. I am really bought into this tool. It is not some fancy, super techie tool that needs to be built out and figured out. It should be as integrated into your workflow and as simple as Google Docs. It's a capacity builder and a time saver. And my goal is to make it easy for organizations, particularly small and growing organizations where time and money and capacity are really an issue to tap into the power of ChatGPT. If you aren't, you're leaving capacity on the table and I want to help you solve that problem. So I took the questions and the conversations that I've been having with nonprofits for the last really six or seven months and turned it into a concrete tool, which is one of my favorite things to do. The nonprofit ChatGPT headquarters is an all-in-one workspace that supports you at every phase of using ChatGPT in your workflow, from giving you ideas to giving you prompts that you can cut and paste right into ChatGPT, to giving you an already built out place to save and organize the prompts that you like, the personalities that you try, and all of the work that you do using ChatGPT. So, If you are still on the fence about ChatGPT, listen to this week's episode. If you're listening to a different episode and hearing this preview, head on over to this week's episode and get inspired. And when you're ready to take the next step and start saving you and your team hours of time and brain energy every week, you can head to brookrichiebabbage.com backslash ChatGPT dash HQ and grab the workspace. Enjoy. Hey, folks, welcome back to the second edition in our special series on scaling with me, Rhea and Brooke. Hello, everyone. We were so excited to do the first one. We're excited to do this one. Today, we are talking about the internal systems and structures that you need to scale. To refresh, the last session, we spoke about all the personal shifts that you need to make in your mindset, both in terms of your orientation to money and your orientation to leadership. Now we're talking about the internal structures that you need within your organization to scale. So let's go, let's do it. (laughs) So let's start with one of my favorite topics. Rhea knows this is one of my favorite topics. Anyone who has listened to me really even ever knows that this is one of my favorite topics and that's strategic clarity. I think if you're talking about your internal strength as an organization to grow in particular, strategic vision, strategic priorities, and being really clear about what your North Star is and where you want to go. Like everything starts with that. Yeah. And I think we have to differentiate here between a strategic plan or strategic Mm -hmm. planning process and strategic priorities. What would you say the difference is? I'm so glad you said that. So strategic vision and strategic priorities are They should be included in a plan, but more important than having a plan that's like a document or something that everyone looks to, 
that strategic vision is where is this organization going? What does success and ideal impact look like when it's playing out for real in the real world? What does it actually look like for this organization? And a lot of people get that confused with, oh, our mission and our vision as an organizational vision, right? We envision a world where there is no hunger. It's beautiful. You should have a vision like that. But your strategic vision is an articulation of the kind of organization and the kind of impact you are going to be and have. How are we moving through the world 10 years from now? Are we a million dollar organization or a $10 million organization? Are we in 15 countries or do we go deep in one community? Like how, how do we look? How are we functioning? And being really clear about what you're building towards and where you're trying to go lays the foundation for every decision you make to get there, right? You're going to make really different decisions as you scale. If you have the vision of scaling to be a $10 million organization, then if you have the vision to scale to be a million-dollar organization that has deep, very strong relationships in one community, those are just different strategic visions. And so to go back to your question, the difference between a vision and a plan, you can have a plan or a document that has goals and the steps you're going to take, but the actual substance of what an organization needs to scale isn't that document. It's the vision in the document. It's the priorities in the document. Does that sort of resonate with you? Because if it resonates with you, it hopefully resonate with folks listening. Yeah. You know what's interesting? Because I know we're talking to a lot of folks who are founders. And I think the great irony about founders is that they tend to be very visionary. And so they want to do all of the things. And sometimes I think that the hesitation to commit to a singular vision is that they feel like they're giving up optionality. Like, I don't know what can happen. I don't know what opportunity might come up. But by not making decisions, you're also sitting in the middle of the road. And so you have to decide. You can change your mind, but you have to. I always think about decide yeah. as a word. It means to put to death all other options. Yeah. Decide and commit. I was a founder. I am also a shiny bubble person. As So the idea of... Yes. The idea of letting go of options is in some ways so painful for me that my brain doesn't even let me think to it. Like it just doesn't occur to me unless I am reminded by a friend or a colleague. But what I will say is I've come to understand both from my experience, I'm sure this was your experience growing your organization and the like hundreds of organizations we've worked with since there are decisions being made, right? There are options being let go of. And either you and your team are making those decisions or external factors are making those decisions for you. So it isn't actually that you are keeping everything on the table and we'll see where this goes. That's not a thing, right? It's you are moving in a direction. You will wind up somewhere. And so either you own the power of you and your team and the community that you build to shape that somewhere, to decide where that somewhere is. Or you let the universe decide by the opportunities that it does and doesn't send you by the money that you do and don't raise. So I think really owning the fact that there are choices and decisions being made either implicitly or explicitly and to make them explicitly is far more empowering and far more effective. When I realized that my sole responsibility as a leader was to create clarity, I think that's when I started to 
lead differently because at the end of the day, everyone needs to know where are we going? Yes. How are we getting there? And I do think there's a little bit of a tension here too as it pertains to funding, right? Because on the yeah. one hand, you want to be super crystal clear about the fact that this is where we're going. This is where we're doing. This is how we're going to get there. This is the, these are the resources that we need. How do you thread the needle between being clear and saying no to the money that diverts you off course versus tweaking in order to get product market fit? So does that question make sense? Absolutely. You want to be, you don't want to be so like fixed and calcified in your thinking and your approaches that you miss opportunities. I'll say two things. One, I think that clarity and responsiveness are not anathema to one another, right? They're not opposites. And what clarity does about vision, and I also see a lot of folks struggle with priorities, which are within that vision, what are the three things we're going to focus on and let go of everything, same sort of deciding. That clarity allows for two things. Internally, it allows you to say to your growing team, to your evolving board, to your internal stakeholders, this is the cathedral we're building, right? We're going to spend a lot of time laying bricks. It's going to feel like we're in the weeds. It's a lot of work. But in the end, this is the cathedral we're building. Do you want in? Which part of the cathedral are you going to work on, Rhea? I'm going to be over here building this wall. And we need to make sure that when you build your wall and I build mine, they line up together. So how do we do that? We have to know what the cathedral looks like in the end. So that clarity helps you make decisions about who you're going to hire, who you're approaching to be on your board, what program partnerships you say yes to where you spend that last dollar externally. And it's equally as important. Externally, it allows the right people to get on board with where you're going. And I know you do a lot of this sort of coaching and supporting inside of your programs and accelerators that part of why people don't want to commit to a vision or priorities is if we just want to be super honest, they feel like they're leaving money on the table, right? This magical person may come one day and say, I want to give you a million dollars to do this thing I want you to do. And oh my God, if we're too specific about the cathedral we're building, we might miss that opportunity. So I'm just going to go on record saying that also is not a thing. That's not real. That's not how fundraising works at scale, right? Maybe at $300,000, but not at 1.5 million. And you and I talk a lot about this. So being able to sit down with a potential major donor, with any donor and say, we're building this cathedral. It's blue. It's 10,000 feet tall. It's on a mountain. We're not building that other cathedral that is red and in a valley. That's not what we're doing. Allows the people who want a blue cathedral on a mountain to say, oh my God, yes, how can we help? That's how you build community. So that vision, the clarity is super important. Now, within that relationship that you build with the right people, that affinity-based relationship, you are going to have conversations where they come to you and say, hey, how you build a cathedral? Is it on the edge of the mountain? Is it looking to the left or right? I'd like to be a co-creator with you on how we execute. That's where the responsiveness comes in. Your strategies the how you get there are going to change. 
they should change. They should be responsive to your constituents, to your clients, and your stakeholders. But the where you're going doesn't change. That's how I've always tried to thread that needle for the folks that I work with. Yeah, that's really powerful. And if I could just share one last point on this, I always think about, you know, John F. Kennedy, when he was running for president, said to the people, we're going to put a man on the moon. When he was elected, he went to NASA and he talked with every single person from the chief scientist down to the janitor. And he was like, what are you doing? And to the one, everyone said, I'm working to put the man on the moon. Like I'm working to put a man on the moon. Like that level of clarity of purpose is what made it possible to put a man on the moon. The other thing is the 10X, which we talk about, which is that the NASA scientists literally had to forget everything that they thought that they knew about how to do it so they could think outside the box. Yes. You have to let go themselves for the new future, not the thing done in the past. Absolutely. Because they they were in 2x thinking, right? They couldn't actually achieve the thing of getting a man to the moon using 2x thinking. Anyway, beautiful segue, though. Let's talk about the people. Yes, I was just going to say, I know one of the things that you and I talk a lot about and that you work a lot on is you cannot do the fundraising piece. You cannot build this cathedral. You can't do it alone. You have to have a strong team. There are people you are building with. Talk to us about this internal team that is so critical to building this cathedral. Okay. So many things here. So we are now specifically talking to folks that are sub a million dollars. And I think that there's this assumption that once you hit a million dollars, like everything is perfect roses, like money's rolling in rainbows (laughs) every single day. The assumption that I just need to hire more people is not the it's not the cure-all here right I'm so glad you're saying this yeah sometimes it's more money more problems people it's just different kind of problems now hiring the right people can be an accelerant for you hiring the wrong people will be an anchor let's talk about staff and then I'll talk about board number one I think first we have to examine why we want to hire someone because I think Sometimes we think that throwing more people at the problem will solve the problem. It might, but it may not always solve the problem. And so I think we have to be really critical in thinking about, are there other ways to solve the problem that don't involve headcount? Because headcount is expensive. Full-time employees with benefits, that's really expensive. Very much. Plus, to say nothing of the effort of trying to find and recruit the right person, it's a nightmare. And retain and maintain culture and all the things. Yeah, Yeah, it's a nightmare. So- The first thing I would say is to think creatively about, are there things that you can chip off that can be delegated out to? I like global arbitrage. So Brooke, you and I have folks that we use internationally that can do certain tactical things for us that don't involve having someone on staff. So that's the first thing. The second thing too, is to get realistic with yourself about the level of expertise that you're actually able to afford. So a lot of times people say, we need to hire a development director. Okay, here's the thing. Here in New York City, a development director is a minimum of six figures, at least an experienced one, one that is worth their salt. Now, if you're a sub-million dollar org, you are most likely not going to be able to afford the six-figure development director. Mm -hmm. So then you have two options. Option one is that you hire someone who's earlier on in their career and they essentially learn on your dime. Or you as an ED, and I think this isn't the better answer, (laughs) 
you as an ED actually learn how to fundraise and you are the chief fundraiser and you hire backup for you so that you can free yourself from the administrative aspects of what it takes to fundraise, like the the data stuff and the inputting the gifts and the preparing the packages and the scheduling of the thing so that you can actually be the chief fundraiser. So with that being said, I think when we think about expenses, particularly as it pertains to staffing, there are three things that make it a good expense. Thing number one is if it brings in more money. Development person is a good development person. If they are proven to bring in more than they cost and like breaking even is not good enough. And you got to be really honest about that. Because that that is really hard to get right sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And look, you also have to give them enough of a runway, right? So I would say within 18 months, they should bring in at a minimum. And actually, honestly, their salary is a bare minimum, but it really should be 2x, really at the outside 12x. But anyway, that's a whole other issue. Number two, does it give you back your time? So if you hire someone, it better be because it frees you up to do stuff. Or number three, does it increase operational efficiency? So if neither of these three things are true, either with staffing or with any other expense, you probably should not expend that money. The first thing I'll say about staffing is be really clear with yourself and refer to your strategic vision about whether or not this adding headcount will be additive to what you're trying to do. Let's talk about the board for a second. So here's the biggest mistake I see with a lot of folks, especially in the stage that we're talking about, which is a fairly early stage, sub million, is they built the board without the intention of growth and without the intention of revenue. So a lot of times what I see is like you bring people on and maybe they're your friends or they're like someone that you've bumped into and you bring them on the board without actually communicating the expectation of being involved in fundraising and either because circumstances change and you're feeling more of the pressure to bring in revenue because you're growing or because it was a bait and switch. In either case, you've brought them on and you've changed the rules of the game. So I would say number one is when you are recruiting, you have to be crystal clear about what the job entails. And if it's going to scare someone away, better to scare them off before they join the board. Yeah. Absolutely. Crystal clarity. This is what it entails. Are you willing to do it? Now, a lot of times people don't have the skill sets to fundraise, which is fine. What I'm looking for is a willingness to learn. So once you get them on the board, are you providing the training and support that they need to be successful? And then once they're on the board, are you holding them accountable? Do you have a culture on the board where people actually do what they say they're going to do? And there's some kind of mechanism that Make sure that they do the thing that they say that they're going to do, i.e. also, do you have a strong board president who is really managing the board? Because guess what, guys? A board chair is supposed to manage the board. I don't know if you knew that. So tell me if this is something that you see, particularly around that last piece, this accountability. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of the leaders I work with are afraid to hold board members accountable, that there is this sort of dynamic of... We're so happy that you have said yes to being on the board that we don't want to do anything to make you too uncomfortable and we don't want to tell you you're not doing a good job because then you might leave. So Mm -hmm. I have lots of thoughts. I do lots of coaching around that, but I'm interested in what you would say to a leader who is navigating that challenge, right? Their boards are not showing up in the way that they want them to. 
and their concerned weight, I only have a board of nine people, right? Because we're talking about smaller organizations. This is a perennial problem. They have the board that they had. It's not going to take them to the next place. And they're like, if six of these people leave, I'll only have three people. So there's this fear. What do you say to that leader? Yeah, that's such a good question. So I will say that it is a process, right? You're not going to have six of your board members resign overnight. That would be terrible. Unless there's like some crisis happening. Right. So I think the first thing is, to Brooke's point, you do have to be clear about where you're headed and what you need to get there. And so it's a process of upgrading your board in the way that, honestly, it's probably a process of upgrading your staff as well. So the skills and capacities and personalities and culture that you have at a three-person team is going to be substantively different than what you need at a 20-person team than what you need at not even 20, like at a 10-person team. So I once heard this thing that everything breaks at threes and fives. So every time you hit the multiple of three or multiple of five, the culture breaks and you have to start again. But you have to think of it as a process of upgrading. So in the in the example that you brought up, first of all, I think we spend too much time watering the weeds and not the flowers, right? We spend too much time pulling our hair over like the board member who won't do the thing, but we ignore the board member who does do the thing. So I think we need to focus our energy and effort on the people who do the thing. And look, I think human beings adhere to a bell curve, right? You have some who are super performers. You have the vast majority that are like kind of average, mediocre, they're doing the thing. And then you have laggards. So Can you consistently upgrade looking at your superstars and your kind of top average performers and then think about a process where you're continuously pruning the bin, recruiting for the top? Then the last thing I'll say, too, is bringing people on in groups of two or three is really key because then you get enough of energetic momentum forward. And so when I was changing the culture of my board, as I was bringing on new people who are very different, like I used to have a mommy, like a Upper East Side mommy board. And I was like, we need to get professional. And so I was super clear with the early folks that I was bringing on. Like, hey, listen, you are part of the change. Yes. This is not going to be how it is forever, but I just need you to know, like we're in a transition moment and will you be the pioneer here? So they yeah. knew going in that they were going to be part of the change. And I, and that can be painful too, especially if you have longtime board members yeah. whose identities are very wrapped up in this is my board. This is my organization. You don't, it doesn't have to be painful, but you can love them right out the door. Yeah. I love that. Awesome. Okay. So the third thing we want to talk about in this sort of internal strengthening your infrastructure to scale episode are systems you cannot scale without systems. And I want to start off by defining what I mean by system (laughs) because That word can make people freak out. It means lots of things to lots of people. When we talk about system, we mean that form should follow function. What are you trying to do with your staff, with your fundraising, with your hiring, with your program expansion? What are you trying to do? What are the pieces you need to put in place to allow you to do this thing? What is the tech? Who are the people? What are the workflows? And then, and this part's very important, what's the relationship between those pieces? So creating an internal structure, a form, where the relationship between the different pieces in a workflow fit together. So I'm going to use fundraising as an example. Hosting events and running campaigns is not a system. It's not a fundraising system. They are 
parts of, hopefully, a fundraising system. They are things that you do. They are elements in the workflow. What you need in order to shift two annual events and three campaigns into a system is to ask yourself, how do these five things that we are doing flow into and build off of one another? That turns it into a system. Now, you guys can't see it, but my hand's doing this little like cycle movement, right? A system builds on itself, right? It regenerates itself. So a few examples. You want to have an internal calendar that builds on itself, right? That makes sense. That reflects how your team wants to work together. You have workflows, you have information flow. You want your calendar to be a system that supports the connectedness on your team. You want to have tech to support the end goals of your system, not tech for tech's sake, right? Don't worry about going out and getting monday.com and all the new things that are, I guess Monday's not new, not newfangled, but anything that doesn't feel, that feels scary, that's okay. You just need to make sure that you have the back office tech that supports the end goal of your system, bringing donors in, for example, organizing them, communicating with them. That's part of a system. And then the last part of a system, and I'm going through this at a pretty fast clip because I want to talk about automation, which I know is something you talk a lot about with your fundraising and they're related, but I want to lay the foundation of what kinds of systems you want to be thinking about. Measuring your impact, measuring the efficacy of your processes are systems, metrics and KPIs that test and refine what's working so that you can get rid of what's not working. That's like the grease in your system. If you think about your systems as an engine, right? Inputs go in, the pieces work together to produce an output. You have to have clear metrics, clear sort of key performance indicators, whatever you're going to call them internally, to make sure that your system is working. And you have, and you can't hold things precious. You can't be so committed to one part of your system that even when you see it's not working, you don't let go of it. Yeah. And I just want to really flag here that we're really talking to the visionary founders because I think yeah, for you and I right. are both, as a visionary founder, you can get pretty far by holding all the pieces together with chewing gum, right? You can get pretty oh, yeah. far by just grinding hard and taking care of all the things. But what we're talking about is scaling yeah, such that it does not depend on you. Like you have to build a system that is not you as the ED at the center. And I think there's an inherent tension here because as a visionary, you have the vision, you have the idea, but the skill set is one of an operator, an integrator, if you will. So you, as visionaries, for you to be super successful, you need to have an integrator who is really good at the systems, the back office, the structures, the, the making sure the train's running on time. And that is a different personality type. I talk a lot about hunters and farmers. Like that is a farmer to your hunter. And I know most ED founders, if not all are hunters, they're big visionaries. They're after the big game, they're like independent. Actually, I just, I want to say about that. I think that is often true. So just using myself as an example, and you know this, you tease me about this all the time. I'm a systems person. So what my actual trap, my like mental trap as we were scaling past, say, 600K was in my sense of myself, I was the systems person. So we didn't need a systems person. I was like, I'm actually very good at blending vision into strategy. And then I hired my first director of operations and was like, oh, this is what it looks like to have someone say to me, you sit in your box. 
you build the relationships, you do the high leverage work. And could you take the time to document everything that's working and add some intentionality and create the policies? Could you do it? Yes. Should you do it? No. And so for those EDs and founders and leaders listening who actually are like, oh no, but actually I like systems. I like a good system. Great. For the first, however many six figures in your organization, you can be the visionary and the systems person. But if you want to scale, you cannot be that person. Even if you want to, even if you like it, it's not your job. Yeah. And you talk about this a lot too. What is your zone of genius? Absolutely. And I also talk about what is the highest and best use of your time. And as the ED, your highest and best use is being the face of the brand, is being the chief relationship officer, is being the chief ambassador. And so anything that is taking you away from that set of responsibilities, even if it makes you uncomfortable, even if you don't like doing it, it may either be time to find a new job or it may be time to delegate out so that you can really focus on it. So let's talk about automation quickly. Yeah. Uh, so there are any number of tools that you can use. So Brooke and I use Zapier, but what what you can do, like we live in a beautiful age of technology right now. <laughs> yeah. There are so many things that you can do to automate your time. So all of the manual work that you're doing can be automated. So the one thing I would recommend to folks is write down the list of tasks that you do that seem to be repetitive, that you do again and again. So that could look like, I don't know, inputting gift data. It could look like creating acknowledgement letters. It could look like, I don't know, sending out emails to various constituents. It could look like social media postings at whatever. Keeping your board updated on what's going on inside the organization. Yeah. It can all be automated. So anything that does not require a human behind it should be automated. Give it to the robots. The robots are very good at this. So where until they take over the world, every conversation, they'll probably be better at it than we are. Let's be real. (laughs) Let the humans human. So where the humans need to step in is really around storytelling. It's about around relationships. It's around being warm and having an emotional connection. Everything else, let the robots take care of it. Absolutely. And just to reference back to, as we wrap up this second part on infrastructure, Everything we're talking about here builds on what we talked about in our first conversation about mindset, that stepping into a new version of leadership and letting go of some things and delegating and working differently with your board and thinking differently about how you're inviting people, philanthropy, donors, people with money into your vision how you're automating things that have to do with money and what does that feel like for you if you're someone who's always felt money was very precious, right? All of this builds on a strong foundation of mindset work. And I think we talked about this in the first episode, but I want to wrap up this episode by just drilling in for folks. Everything that Rhea and I are talking about in this series, this is a process. This is a process that we both went through for over a decade And every phase we got to with our organizations, and we see this with the leaders that we work with, there are going to be more things to learn. There's new mindset challenges. There's new money mindset stuff and new versions of leadership. There are new systems to set up and new teams to hire. So it is an ongoing process. And what we're trying to do here is just give you the fundamental pillars to look out for, to say, huh, is it time to start thinking about upgrading my team? Is it time to work on that pillar? And what does that work look like? 
Yeah, absolutely. So our next episode, our last in the series, will be about the external levers that we need to pull in order to scale. So that's when we will be talking about fundraising and relationships with funders, uh, the importance of brand identity and messaging, and the building ambassadors and influencers in your network. Yeah, and storytelling. So so much fun. Stay tuned for that. But Brooke, if folks want to learn more about this or anything that we're doing, what should they do? I think they can go to either of our websites, right? Mm-hmm. Ria.com or com, And we have a really great quiz that folks can take to lift up where, which of these pillars you want to focus on. And so we'll put the link to that quiz in the show notes. Fantastic. So go hustle over to that quiz, take it so that you can help identify the areas that you may need some support. Get some resources. And we will see you on the next episode. Have a great week. Thanks, Brooke.